Good morning. Um, talk about upside down. This last week has been quite the turnaround in a lot of ways. Things are inside out. It's not what we expected. We're not sure exactly how to act, what's going on, all sorts of things all at once. And um, I really appreciate James's prayer and our prayer together. This has been um, designated a national day of prayer over the coronavirus, and we're going to do that um, after the message. Uh, we will not be having communion this morning. We're just trying to figure out kind of the right path to take um, in this. We don't want to be a source of transmission or cause problems for anyone, and so um, I made kind of the judgment that that might be one of those things that we need to drop for a week or two. We'll see. And uh, stay tuned. Uh, we're not sure. Uh, today, I think it's going well. Thank you for those who are coming. And thanks to all those who are online from within our congregation who are watching us right now. I, I'm trying to follow the Facebook feed myself. And um, I also see I've got some friends on there. Carol from Huntsville, Alabama, and uh, Catherine Colson is watching. That is uh, Zoe's mom, so it's great to see you, and Susan uh, Mixdorf, and then my cousin, Susan, and uh, she, she's in St. Louis. Um, so it's great to see that, and even Jody Nevis up in Michigan, and Linda uh, Marie o Ostrom, uh, let's see, you know who that is. That's your in-loves, I guess, right? <laughs> not in-laws, um, so, um, and Brad Vojak even. Um, Brad and his wife uh, were here for a while. They're back up in Chicago. Hey, it's great to see you all there. And Helen uh, uh, Roenfeldt and family, and even Beth Ann Klotz. Uh, Beth and um, Alan, her, his, uh, her husband, were just integral to my first ministry in um, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. He was a professor of biochemistry, a protein chemist, worked on pond scum, cyanobacteria. <laughs> uh, what we have a problem with in the Caloosahatchee River, by the way. So it was kind of fascinating, it kind of comes around. So it's great to see everyone. Good morning, everyone. We're praying for you, we're praying for our church. Um, we may see what the next weeks bring if we need to still do this. Um, oh, if we can have public worship like we're having today, uh, and we feel like that's appropriate and wise, or if we need to just go to fully online where we just have maybe a few instrumentalists, myself. We're gonna try to do different ways to connect during the week, um, different live feeds and stuff. We wanna still be community even if we can't be physically close to each other, okay? So let us know if you've got any creative ideas in that route. I sure don't. <laughs> I, I'm, I, I'm not a tech guru. Uh, we've got a couple back there. So Tyler and Wyatt, I know you can come up with some good ideas, okay? So we'll try to do that and keep everybody connected, praying for everyone. If anyone's ever sick, let us know about it. If anybody's in need, if there are ways we can serve this community and make an impact, we'll try to do that. So we've talked about the food bank. Um, another idea is if you are up to it to give blood because during a time like this, it's um, all of a sudden the blood uh, supply goes low. Um, and so um, we need to be praying for all our medical people and all those who are really on the front lines of this. There's so many different things going on. And I probably need to pray for you if you've got kids at home for the next couple weeks. 
right? <laughs> Special blessings. Okay. So um, that's all going on. But we're going to uh, continue with our ser uh, sermon series today, The Upside Down Kingdom. I think it fits with everything that's going on. It's all back. What you thought you knew last week and what you know today and what's really it all about, um, I think people are reevaluating. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a good thing in all of this other stuff that's going on. So we're going to look at the scripture lesson. It's going to be from Mark chapter 10 today. And, um, and it's one of the hard sayings of Jesus, maybe one of the hardest. And it's as controversial today as it was when he first said it. Okay. And after we read it, we'll get into it. We're going to pray and uh, kind of go along. And if I get any good ideas from the Facebook feed, you just let me know. Nobody's really responding yet. You got a question? You have a prayer concern, by the way. Bring it to me, because we're going to do prayers after this instead of communion. So uh, please uh, sign in. Tell us what you want to pray for, any specifics for your area. Okay? So Mark chapter 10. You can follow along, actually, on the Bible app, the U version, under events. You can find um, Thrive Community Church. And if you are across the country, you have to type in 33928 for the zip code, and we'll pop up. Okay? I know that's a lot of information. But let's read the scriptures now, shall we? And as he was setting on his out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him that who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, for our nation, for our world, for all those in fear, for those who are holding on to so many things, Lord, we ask you to help us to let go of them all and hold on to you. Teach us what the good life is today how upside down your kingdom is, how inside out it is from what we expect. And teach us, Lord, to truly uh, trust you. To trust you. 
And Lord, if this is a day that brings our nations humbly to our knees and looks to you, Lord, so be it. We would pray that you would humble us to the point where we see our need for you, not just over this virus or over some pandemic or over our economy, but that there is no part of our life that doesn't need you involved. That we need you more than the air we even breathe. And teach us that, Lord, this day, what it means to be a part of the kingdom and that you can give us assurance this day that we are in it because of you, Lord Jesus. The impossible happens all the time. All this we pray in your precious name. Amen. So, as um, I kind of said, we're in week three of this series, Upside Down Kingdom. Last week, we talked about the upside down nature of what greatness looks like, you know. Who's the goat, the greatest of all time? Um, and in the world, it's always about competition. It's always about pushing and shoving and demanding and always trying to stay on top and be on top and then always wondering if I'm going to get cut, chopped down, cut out, lose out. And there's a lot of fear and anxiety in that. Today, we're not looking at greatness and the upside-down nature of that. The greatest in the kingdom, we said last week, was the child. And at that day and age, the child was not looked at as so wonderful and innocent, but as helpless and needy and dependent. And the child that Jesus brought into the middle of his disciples was so young, he couldn't even, or she couldn't even, stand on her own two feet. That's, the, that's that word, uh, pideon, that was used in the text. That that child could not stand on its own two feet, but was totally reliant on everything. And the child was so young, the child had not learned to negotiate. Children learn that by two or three, how to negotiate. But as we sang in our last song, we throw all negotiations aside when we deal with the God of creation and the God of our salvation. You entered the kingdom of God like a little child. You don't stand on your own two feet. You're utterly dependent on God, and that's the good thing. So that's part of what greatness was about. Today we're going to look at goodness. What's the good life? And what does it mean that you're living the good life? What's really good? That's what this text seems to be focused on in different ways. Okay. So today we're going to look up three things in this text. What it's not, the good life what it is, and how to live the truly good life, okay? And maybe it's better now than ever to realize a lot of the stuff that we're now starting to miss isn't really part of the good life, you know? Sports. I love them, but maybe I'll spend more time with my family now. I saw the joke. I don't know if anybody saw the joke in Facebook and everything where it's like... Uh, Oh, you know, now that the sports are not on, I just noticed um, there's a woman sitting on the couch next to me. <laughs> oh, and she happens to be my wife, and she seems pretty nice. <laughs> Maybe our focus has been on stuff that isn't the best, right? So, but what it's not, we're going to look at that right now. This is what's fascinating is we've got a classic example in front of us the case study of what it seems like the good life is all about in this rich young man, right? He's got it all. He seems to have it all. He seems to not just be good in the sense of, boy, 
He's young, like our society worships youth, in a sense. He's also rich, and our society tends to worship money. But he's also moral or ethical. First of all, he says from his youth, probably age 12, when he would have probably had his bar mitzvah, taking on the, um, the, the covenant and all the rules and regulations, he had kept all the rules, every one of them. So he was good in the eyes of even religion at the time. And he was respectful. He came to Jesus and he bows down in the text and calls him good teacher. What must and asks the question. This is the most honor and so much honor and respect, by the way, that it's almost unparalleled in first century Judaism to find anyone respect anyone else, any teacher like this young man. So he's got it all together. And what's fascinating too is the disciples are not turned off by him or his wealth or any of that stuff. They didn't look at him or sneer at him or think that that was a problem. He had everything good about him. From the outside, his life looks good. And there is this conflation that happens often in our world. When, when things are going well in my life, I tend to think I'm also a good person. Right? If I get good grades in school, I must be a good person. If my finances are doing well, I must be a good person. If I'm rich, it's a blessing from God. Therefore, God is giving his rubber stamp on everything about me. I'm a good person. But that's not the good life, Jesus says. This man was sincerely wrong. He was sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. Because what he was trying to uh, attain the good life by is trying to find a life that was pleasing to God. And you might go like, well, what's wrong with that? Everybody should fill a life that is pleasing to God. If more people were actually thinking about trying to please God with their lives, everything would be good. But Jesus says that's not the good life. And you're going like, you're gonna, what? You want me to leave a life that's not pleasing to God? No. But that's not the aim of your life to start with. Jesus looks at him, and he says, you're trying to do everything to inherit eternal life. Do you realize that's a contradiction in terms? To do something to inherit, right? To do something to inherit. No. Inheritance is always a gift that you do nothing for. So Jesus looked at him, and he says, one thing you lack, go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. So the good life, Jesus is saying, is not related to the amount of money you have in your life. The good life is not related to the place money has in your, well, the good life is not how much money you have, but the place that money has in your life. Do you get that? It's not how much you got, it's what place does it have. If it starts taking over first place, you got a problem. The biggest problem for this young man is that his money had a place in his life that only God should have. And why do I say that? Because of the way he responds to Jesus' command to give up everything that he has and to follow him. Jesus, in one sense, is saying, imagine your life without your wealth. Nor 401k, 
no retirement plan, nothing. Strip yourself of all of that stuff, and you follow me and trust me. That's the good life, by the way. Trust me that I am enough for you. And the rich man, when he heard these words of Jesus, how did he respond? It says, he's disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now that word sounds like, oh, sad emoji, you know, a little tear, that's all. No, it's not just that. He actually is totally distraught and shocked and, are you kidding me? Um, And just falling apart over the idea of separating his money from his life. Because, see, that word, that Greek word for distraught or disheartened here, is the same word that's used in Matthew 26 when Jesus himself is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it says that he is troubled in his spirit at that moment because he is wrestling with the idea in front of him, not of the physical pain of the cross, but of the existential crisis of his life, that his identity, who is his father, and his relationship with his father is taken away from him at the cross. And so this young ruler had so placed all his eggs in the basket of his wealth, just like Jesus had placed his entire life in his father's hands. It was his identity. And you take away somebody's identity that they've attached to something good but not great, like money, and their life falls apart and they become, quote, disheartened what this word is. What occupied the core of Jesus' identity, his father, for this rich young man, it was his money. So that's why Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That's a hard saying today as well. Because honestly, we're all kind of rich. Compared to the world standards, we're all rich. We got more than enough stuff. I don't know why people are hoarding so much toilet paper. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I think you probably had a supply at home of enough for about three or four weeks anyways, right? And like the joke is, we've got enough one, uh, we've got enough socks (laughs) on the side that don't have matches for quite a while longer too. (laughs) I don't know. Anyway, now, a lot of people have looked at this phrase and go like, well, wait a minute, Jesus must not mean a real camel. It must mean something else. Or some people will look, ah, Jesus doesn't mean the eye of a little sewing needle. He must mean something else. And people have tried to water down this phrase in one form or another. And all those explanations that I've ever read on this just don't add up because the disciples themselves are shocked, right? So if it was possible... They wouldn't think it was that shocking. Oh, it just means that the camel has to kind of be unburdened from things and crawl on his little legs through this hole in the wall. No, this is the same kind of metaphor that we have in our English language, and you know the one, a snowball's chance in, (laughs) not in Florida, no chance at all, impossible. The camel is the largest animal in the Middle East, and the needle on a sewing needle is the smallest opening, and that's what Jesus is using in this comparison. 
And you can tell the disciples are shocked. They're not, they're shocked because this man is as good as you can get in this world. This is the best of humanity in every possible way, and it's still not enough. You know, I think Jesus is a great counselor. You know, a good counselor, when someone comes in for counseling, I don't know, I've gone a couple times, you present a problem to the counselor, right? You say, hey, you know my life, I'm just a real... And the good counselors know the presenting issue is usually not the real issue. The person may think it is, they're stuck on it, but the real issue is something behind the issue. And Jesus knew the real issue for this young man is not his uh, question, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Because every Jew in the first century knew the answer. It hadn't changed. It's not like there were 45 different interpretations. It was keep the commandments and don't sin. That's how you do it. The man knew it from age 12, and yet Jesus saw there was something more going on. The real issue was this man is not as together as he looked. He was insecure. He was anxious. He questioned. He wanted to be pleasing to God. You start trying to be pleasing to God, and the longer you try to keep doing the right things, the more you question if you've done enough. Do you get that? The answers are always the same. And the questions keep coming. Well, what should I do to, well, can I please God? Am I pleasing to God? Am I really pleased? Have I really done enough? When you try to gain eternal life by what you do, there will always be questions. Is it enough? It's interesting. I've, um, when I teach contemporary world religions at FGCU, I bring in an imam uh, from, uh, from the Muslim faith. And one of the questions I ask is, you know, you talk about submitting to God and following his commands and all. Do you know you're going to have eternal life? And the answer is, of course I don't. No one is sure. How could you be sure? Perhaps, hopefully, I pray, I hope so. In a system of rules and laws, of trying to be good enough to please God enough to get there, the answer will always be, not so sure, and the anxiety will break in. Jesus wasn't concerned about the bad things in this guy's life. He was concerned about the good things and the place they had. If you want to just repent of the bad things in your life, you will become a Pharisee. Jesus is telling this young man, you need to repent of the good things in your life to follow me to turn away from those things. And every one of us, whether it's our wealth or our beauty, our looks or something, something in our life is taking the place of the good things in our life that we are counting our identity on and we're trying to use as a measure of how pleasing we are to God. For a lot of Americans, it is their wealth. David Bentley Hart in First Things in 2012 said many American Christians have a special talent for elevating the blandest and most morally nugatory aspects of social and economic life to the status of positive spiritual goods, essentially laudable, and somehow all a piece of the teachings of Christ. 
he kind of goes on and says, so often people look at their economics and think it's all good and everything, and, and they justify themselves by how they're doing socially and economically, and it has nothing to do with how they're really in the kingdom of God in the first place. So for this young man, it was his career, his youth, his knowledge, his piety, his trying to keep the law, his money, his wealth, all these things that were adding up, and yet he was insecure. So Jesus is really saying, you know, it's one thing to try to please God. It's another thing to trust God. That's your choice. And he laid it out as bluntly in front of this young man as possible. You've been living your life to please God, and you will never get there. Throw all that stuff away. Trust me. That's the good life. Well, I've kind of almost started to get into the what is. Okay? Jesus looked at him and looked at the disciples when they were shocked at all of this. And he says, with man it is impossible, and not with God, for all things are possible with God. You see, what the good life is, it's the impossible life. It's the miraculous life. The only people who are saved in God's kingdom are those who realize it's only a miracle that they're saved in the first place. It has nothing to do with me. I haven't deserved it or earned it. I couldn't manufacture it. I can't do anything to get my life so pleasing to God that I finally know it's all about trust. The good life is one where you trust God for your goodness and not yourself. There's a book by John Lynch. Um, I read it recently called The Cure. It's a pretty good read. And he uses kind of this metaphor of the difference between pleasing God and trusting God. And the only way to ever get anywhere in life is to really trust God. Trying to go to the route of good intentions and pleasing God, you will end up with anxiety and stress and basically the life of this young man. And in it, he says this, when our pr primary motive becomes trusting God, we suddenly discover there is nothing in the world that pleases him more. Until you trust God, nothing you do will please God. So the young man was trying to please God and failed. And Jesus called him to trust him above anything else. The good life is one where you may have a lot of things, but they never have you. John Lynch goes on and says, This life in Christ is not about what I can do to make myself worthy of his acceptance, but about daily trusting what he has done to make me worthy of his acceptance. So are you going to trust God or are you going to try to please him? That's the choice. So how do you live this truly good life that we've talked about? So um, you do have to deal with this issue of motivation. I think that's what Jesus was getting at with this young man. It was a matter of whom he was really trusting and what he was trusting. Was he trusting his own goodness, how he could do things to inherit eternal life, his wealth, where his identity was. And Jesus responds, and you know what's amazing in that? I don't know if you recognize, he doesn't 
blow him off. He doesn't treat him negatively. He loves him. It's, the text says he loves him. And in order to really understand what's going on sometimes in the Gospels, you've got to take these little stories, these shorter narratives, and put them in the broad narrative of what's going on. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to do here with this young man. Because when he loves him and he responds the way he does, do you realize what is going on in Jesus' life? He's saying, you know what? I'm a young man too. He was what, 28, 29, 30 at the time? I'm a young man too. And talk about rich. <laughs> I have had everything everything, every treasure that you could possibly think of, and the love of the Father from eternity. I have been given all things. Everything is mine. There is nothing outside of the realm in this creation that you put treasure or wealth in that isn't mine in the first place. But I give it all up. I gave it all up. I gave it up for you. I gave up everything that was rightfully mine, all the treasures of heaven itself, to have you. And he looks at this young man and says, are you willing to give up the little that you have to be with me? That's the perspective. Jesus isn't asking you or me to do anything he hasn't done a million times over. And when you start seeing the great story of what Jesus Christ has given up to have you, to center his life around you and your needs, to look at you and say, you're worth everything to me, and he pours it all out. And when that starts to melt your heart, that when that starts to transform your thoughts and your motivation, then you respond to the things of this world and see that money is just money. It's no longer an identity. And your work is just a job, and it's not, no longer the thing that makes me who I am. It's the love of the Father. You are already pleasing to God. Trust in what God thinks of you, God has done for you, what God has accomplished in you. And Paul puts it in economic terms of all places in 2 Corinthians 8 9, where he says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And he's talking about the cross there and pouring out his life and giving everything to you. The simplicity, but the profundity of that gift. And all of a sudden, when that becomes your central identity, all of a sudden the envy of others and what they've got kind of fades away because it's nothing compared to what has been given to you already. And you start to grow in sympathy to the people around you who, uh, well, and you stop playing the morality card of, well, I, I'm keeping the rules better than you are because you realize that's not what it's about. And then you start figuring ways to engage with the poor and to invest in the community and serve others. And you start seeing that that's the good life, the life that follows Jesus, that trusts him with everything and doesn't count all the stuff that you've got, anything but opportunities to serve and to give and to love. You see, the heart of the gospel is the cross. And the cross is all about giving up power and pouring out resources and serving others.
That's the upside-down kingdom, and that's the upside-down good life. You know, in, um, we're going to enter into a time of prayer in a moment. We will not be passing offering plates around today. We'll have them at the doors. We're just trying to eliminate any opportunity for um, transmission of anything, I guess. I know we've all washed our hands and purified ourselves a hundred times over, but we're still trying to do everything we can in precautions that make sense. But we're going to enter into a time of prayer. Um, The band is going to be coming up uh, in a moment, and we will use, instead of the time of communion, a time to pray for our nation and our people, and I think also in ways that we can show God's goodness to this world, that we can trust him during this time more than ever. And we can show the upside-down nature of God's kingdom uh, in a way that really impacts people's lives. Okay? So um, let's, uh, the question is, really, and we've been asking, um, and uh, how can we pray for you this week? Let us know. We asked online, and um, nobody's responded quite yet. Wyatt? Okay. Uh, I'd love to see uh, what kind of prayers they need in their communities. I know we've got Christy Calland, even from uh, California, from a church that I was out there years ago. And Karen and Richard Butt are watching, too. And so we've got people from um, quite a few different places watching us right now, and we're thankful for that. Um, So bring the band on up, and let's start praying, shall we? Yes, I'm sorry. I took that from you all, and you need it. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you this day that um, you sent your Son, the greatest gift of all, that uh, the good life is not trying and attempting to do what we can to please you, but responding to the truth, the reality of how you were so, lo- that so loved us that you gave your only son, and we trust you. Increase our trust in these days, Lord God, especially at a time when the World Health Organization has um, stated we're in a pandemic, and um, where even our medical facilities are not enough, and um, where we need you more than ever. Give us, O Lord, just the sense of whose we are, that our identity is in you and not in the things of this world, that you've given all good gifts to us, but we're not going to place our trust in them but in you. We pray, Lord God, for this nation. Right now, um, we pray for our leaders, for um, the task force that President um, Trump and Vice President um, Pence have placed together. We pray, Lord, that you give wisdom to those who speak, from Anthony Fauci of the CDC to others, that um, egos set aside, agendas, personal uh, points of view, and that they focus on the good of all, Lord, 
and through them that we listen and respond appropriately. Lord God, we pray that um, you would work in our hearts and lives as well and in this community. We look around and we don't even know exactly where we're at. Um, We've only heard of a few cases, but there may be many more. We pray, Lord, in the days ahead that you would teach us how we can serve wisely, how we can give sacrificially, how we can respond generously, and how we can lift up our neighbors and show the difference that you make. We pray for your blessing upon um, our state. We look to our governor and um, all of our elected leaders, and we pray for your wisdom and guidance and protection upon them. Grant to them, O Lord, um, what they need. We lift up to you as well, Lord, um, Florida Gulf Coast, the college students that we minister with, and um, we uh, pray for them in the coming weeks with changes in their schedule, for the faculty and staff and all others at the university there and across our state, as we are all uh, in a different phase of online learning that you would Um, that you would work in their lives, that you would draw them closer to you during this time. Lord God, um, there are many, many uh, petitions we can place before you today. We, uh, We lift up all those who are watching online. We thank you for them. We pray for those who are in Indianapolis, in the Tampa Bay area, even um, across the pond, in Great Britain and Wales. We lift up, Lord, those who are at home in our midst, and uh, we pray for them today. Bring your healing hand upon them all. Care for them. Keep us connected, Lord, across the miles, and Thank you for the technology where we can do that, even while we are physically distant. Lord God, you know our hearts, you know our needs. We ask that you would sum them all up as you have so eloquently, Lord Jesus, modeled the prayer, prayed it for us, and encouraged us to pray together the prayer you taught us. And so we do. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. 